understanding what's going on in New York City now, the political conversation about spending and about aid requires realizing that this is shaped too by the burden of history. Um, for people in this city of a certain age, even people who are much younger than when it occurred, the 1970s fiscal crisis crucially shapes our understanding of the city. It's basically the marker of modern New York. Um, the lessons from that era are kind of seared in our political, our, our collective political consciousness. Uh, it's a very, very big part of the anxiety and the discussion and some of the policy choices that are being considered today, even though we're many decades removed from that and facing a very different kind of crisis. Take, for instance, in early August, this I think was Thursday, August 6th, when the state convened its annual meeting of the Financial Control Board, an oversight body that was created during the 70s fiscal crisis. And in his opening remarks, moments into the meeting, uh, Robert Mujica, who is the state's uh, budget director, made reference to the history of the fiscal crisis. The board's roots reach back to 1975, when the markets refused to buy New York City debt, and the city's public accounting masked the severity of the problem and still showed uh, a year-end deficit in the billions. This is a history told and retold many times. Um, the national economy was in a recession. Many New Yorkers were leaving the city at the time and were taking their tax dollars with them. Primarily, however, the impetus was that the credit markets discovered that the city had been creatively using different kinds of borrowing to balance its budgets, and it would not be able to repay any new debt. In short, the everyday services on which all New Yorkers relied on was being paid not only with current tax dollars, but with future tax dollars as well. In the throes of this crisis, it was noted by prominent observers that it was the misuse of borrowing that distinguished New York from other cities and was the fundamental cause of the city's crisis at the time. Again, that was August 6th, the meeting of the state's financial control board. Uh, Robert Mujica, the, the state budget director, a Cuomo uh, appointee, uh, chairing the meeting of the board, talking about the history of the fiscal crisis. And he went on for quite some time talking about that history, a history that he clearly thinks bears on what the city is going through today. And Mayor de Blasio, who responded uh, at the same meeting, wasn't going to accept that the uh, history applied, but certainly talked about the lessons and the impact and the fallout from the fiscal crisis um, creating the city as we know it today. We made a lot of tough decisions on savings. We're gonna make a lot more. We've made very clear uh, that we're ready to take extensive actions and not easy or popular actions if needed. Uh, so I do appreciate the history, but as I think you'll see in my presentation, we have very deeply accounted for a number of these concerns. And I think it would just be a mistake to think this is anything like the New York City of the 60s or 70s or even 80s. We are today a tremendous global economic capital. And even though we've been uh, obviously deeply thrown for a loop like so many other places, recently as February, we had 4.6 million jobs, the most we've had in our history. Uh, so I, I do appreciate the points you made, Mr. Chair, but I will also say I think there's a lot of reason to be optimistic about New York City's future because of just plain structural improvement that has happened over decades. So there is, as the budget director alluded to, a very commonly understood popular history of the fiscal crisis, what it was, what lessons we're supposed to draw from it. Uh, but it is just one version of what happened back then, why it happened, uh, 
what the response was, what the impact of that response looked like. And it's important to understand the fuller picture because this is going to create the city that we will hand down to our kids over the next few decades as it plays out over the next several weeks and months. And so to understand that better, we have a very special guest for this show, a very long conversation, Kim Phillips-Fine, who teaches American history at New York University, where she is an associate professor in the Gallatin School of Individualized Studied, Studies. Uh, she is a distinguished lecturer for the Organization of American Historians. Her essays have appeared in The Nation, The Atlantic, The Journal of American History, and The Baffler, among other publications. And she's the author of Invisible Hands, The Businessmen's Crusade Against the New Deal, which came out in 2009. And the reason we have her on today, 2017's Fear City, New York's Fiscal Crisis and the Rise of Austerity Politics. I spoke with Professor Phillips Fine a couple weeks ago. And this is how our conversation went. So the fiscal crisis, um, it, it has been, a lot has been said and written about that. It's one of those phrases that instantly conjures up uh, images of like cops with bad mustaches and men wearing suits with very, very broad lapels and ties um, and a whole lot of, you know, um, alleged lessons and morals and a kind of story that comes with it. Why write about the 70s fiscal crisis in 2017? It seems very prescient now. What um, led you yeah. do it uh, three years ago? Right. Well, I, I actually, you know, I, I had started working on um, Fear City much earlier, I guess around um, 2008, 2009. So it was actually right. Uh, I, I guess I, I started working on it. Um, during the the uh, stock market crash and financial panic and subsequent recession that came at the end of the Bush and the beginning of the Obama years. Um, I had actually been interested in the subject for a lot longer though. And I think I was brought to it um, partly because I am a lifelong New Yorker. I grew up in, in the city um, I was born in 1975, so actually right at the peak of the fiscal crisis. Um, and I was interested in this as a way of thinking about how New York had changed over my lifetime. And I think I also became interested in the way that crises and financial crises in particular, um, how they can be used to reshape politics and the way that they help to create the sense, a, a sense of inevitability um, about events. And I wanted to try to unpack that and look at the currents underneath the surface. And then, you know, finally, my work previous, pri prior to, to Fear City, had been about the history of the conservative movement and the right um, in the post-war years. And I think that when I was finishing my first book, which is about the role of business and kind of conservative business activists in building the right, I became interested in um, kind of how the way that liberals and liberalism changed as well in the 70s and 80s. And um, I think that was also part of what brought me to the fiscal crisis. And that's a really interesting point, too, because the subtitle of your book is The Rise of Austerity Politics, but it could also be seen as uh, a, a resurrection of sorts, because if you mm -hmm. obviously look at earlier crises of the Great Depression, the initial response by President Hoover was, was to be austere. Uh, mm -hmm. And even President Roosevelt, you know, famously pulled back on the New Deal and created a small recession in his second term. So it's, it, in some ways, austerity, it, it seems like it's almost sort of the, the natural 
uh, American political disposition. Right. Well, I think there is definitely a long history of responding to crisis or to, to different to, to both economic crisis and to, um, you know, the, the, the sense that pulling back, cutting back, that economic pain is just something people have to suffer through that if you do at the end, something glorious and good will come out of it. So there's a sort of a, that is a, a long standing trope in American history for sure. Um, I think the way it plays out with cities is a little bit different, but, um, but yeah, you can definitely see that thread going back further. So the New York City fiscal crisis, you know, as I said earlier, the name kind of conjures up a particular story, a way that that history has been um, summarized and kind of encapsulated as a lesson for us in later years. You know, for those who might be uninitiated who are listening to us, yeah. what is the orthodox telling or sort of the popular version of the fiscal crisis story? What what did happen to the city? Well, so what, what happened in, in 1975 is the, um, the New York went through a protracted fiscal crisis where it seemed like the city would go bankrupt um, over much of the course of 1975. The banks that had historically handled the city's debt, both kind of purchasing it and selling it to a community of investors around the country, said that there was no market for the city's debt any longer. And as the credit markets to the city closed, it looked like the city was going to have to declare bankruptcy. And um, the federal government initially was very reluctant to provide any form of aid. And so there was a, a good period of time where bankruptcy seemed like a real possibility for the city. And then in response or what, you know, afterward, eventually the federal government um, agreed to provide loans to the city, but only on the condition that it sharply cut its spending. And again, like for much of the rest of the 70s, whether the city would do this, would it, you know, would, would a situation develop again where the city might go bankrupt? That seemed like a real possibility. So for many years, I mean, and, and almost immediately, actually, and then for a long time afterward, the way this was typically explained was that the city had been just too generous. New York had a very broad welfare state. Um, it was unusually, you know, that the public sector in New York was unusually extensive, especially by American standards. And, you know, the, the city had a network of, at the peak, more than 20 municipal hospitals. It had a... Um, a, uh, a free system of higher education in CUNY. The CUNY system was expanding over the post-war years. Um, it, 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 it had adopted a policy of open admissions whereby anybody who graduated from a New York City public high school was guaranteed admission somewhere in the CUNY system and could attend for free. Um, the city obviously also had a very extensive set of libraries, parks, public cultural institutions, its transit system, you know, despite it, it was unparalleled in the United States, it had a very robust and extensive set of public institutions, a, a broad public sector and a very ambitious public sector. And the narrative that grew up around the fiscal crisis was that this was just too much. There was no way a city could sustain all of this. It was too generous and the problem was um, liberalism itself. And I think it was usually, you know, framed in terms of liberalism, but rather than the left, but a kind of that, that left liberal politics would inevitably end in a kind of overreach and fiscal collapse. 
and I think that story, um, you know, has lasted in a lot of ways in city politics, a sense that that's what brought the fiscal crisis about. Um, and that there's, you know, a danger to excessive government spending because it may wind up in this kind of crisis. And I guess I, I became interested. Oh, and I guess another part of the narrative is really that New Yorkers collectively accepted the errors of their ways and agreed that the only solution was a set of massive public cutbacks that shrank the city government by, shrank city employment by about 20% over the five years that followed the crisis and led to sharp cuts really across, you know, the, the vast range of city services. Um, so the, the sense that, that city New Yorkers accepted this, said there was no choice except these cutbacks, and they, you know, made do with less. And I was interested or one, in, in the, the book, um, I think I wanted to, to both call into question the extent to which this was the, you know, wh why did the crisis really happen? What other ways are there of understanding how the city got into this set of difficulties? Um, I think an underlying assumption of the, a lot of the common wisdom is that it was just wrong for New York to do all the things it was doing, that the things it was doing were sort of silly and frivolous and not appropriate. And I guess I came at it from a basically different perspective of saying the kinds of things the city was doing were actually of vital importance to creating a democratic, political, and economic culture. Um, there, not that every single thing was perfect by any means, which it wasn't, um, but that the project un, at its roots was a good one and not one to be easily or lightly dismissed, and that something important was lost as it was dismantled. Right. You describe in, in the opening parts of the book where you talk about this rich web, web of services as, as it being kind of elemental to what the city was in the middle of the 20th century and to, you know, the kind of particular social contract or political bargain that the city represented, that it was, you know, this was about um, a business class that if they grumbled about it, still felt like there was a reason to provide these services for their mm -hmm. customers and their workers. Um, and, and so it was really, it was, it was kind of essential to New York's identity and, and part of its allure. Yeah. And I mean, I think, you know, in certain deep ways, I think it, it's, it still is, or, you know, I, th I think that the, the set of public institutions remains um, to the present day a big part of what is appealing about New York, um, despite the different ways in which they've been constrained or, or, or damaged or reshaped, actually, um, these institutions remain very key to the city. But certainly in the middle years of the 20th century, and I think, you know, the, the book, um, yeah, it, it describes the kind of culture they supported, the kind of urban space they made possible. And I think this is important, too. It wasn't, you know, the, the city in the post-war years was obviously still very divided by class and perhaps, you know, even more critically by race. And, but, but and the public sector, as it took shape, reflected this. It reflected these underlying inequalities. But nonetheless, activists pushing for a better city pushed for better city services. They, by and large, you know, the, um, the Black activists and Latinx activists who wanted to make a more equal New York sought improved city services as one important part of that project, that political project. So. Um, 
you know, I think it was part of the framework of people, how people thought the city could be improved still further, even in you know, kind of over those years. So obviously the, the event that triggered the actual crisis was, as you mentioned, the city no longer being able to sell its debt and the city, like many governments, has always borrowed for capital projects, for infrastructure mm -hmm. work and that sort of thing. What was unique about this time was that it had begun for, for many, many years, dating back to Mayor Wagner, borrowing to cover operating expenses and then rolling that debt forward. But it, it strikes me that that was, that was what kind of, that was the symptom that alerted people to the problem. But yeah. the, the sustainability of, of the system, of this rich web of services and the, the, the revenue base that supported it had become to, had started to get separated years earlier, right? I mean, there was the, mm -hmm. the famous, um, I think like City in Crisis series that was done before Lindsay was elected. So what was happening to kind of shake what had been apparently a sustainable balance between yeah. the generous welfare state and the stuff to pay for it, and suddenly that wasn't there anymore? Yeah, well, I think it, 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 it happened slowly, but, it, but the, um, the, well, the changing economic base of the city affected this, the deindustrialization of the city, which again is not a kind of a neutral or inevitable event. Um, the city loses a lot of industry over the late 50s and the 60s, and it does so um, as companies leave both looking for lower labor costs, companies leave because of changing federal trade policies that make it easier for them to relocate overseas. Um, they leave as uh, real estate developers want to claim different parts of the city, for example, downtown Manhattan, um, and to, to, to rezone parts of the city from industrial use to kind of being appropriate for high-end um, office, retail, and residential construction. So there's a kind of a, a struggle over the economic base of the city that ultimately erodes its industrial base and it plays a big part in the changing economic composition of the city. Um, the suburban is it, you know, kind of the flight to the suburbs is another kind of important part of the story. And then also I think another, um, you know, another aspect of the, the change has to do with the changing attitude and interests of the banks themselves, that banks become less interested for as there's a set of financial deregulations in the early 1970s, um, they also become somewhat less interested in holding municipal bonds. And, um, the, and, and so that also kind of changes the market. So all of these things together are part of kind of what, and, and I think and also happening, um, there's a long-standing and growing discomfort with part within parts of the city's elite about the local, uh, the size of the local public sector, and you find a lot of conversations, um, for example, at the New York Stock Exchange in the 1960s about how um, you know all the different city services and the threat of higher taxes to come in the future. So there's a, a, a high level of, and at one point the New York Stock Exchange actually considers moving out of the city altogether or threatening to do so to go to California or Connecticut or something. So there's a, a kind of a, a, a discomfort at the elite level with what the city is starting to look like. And all of this, um, you know, for a while, so in, in the early 60s, 
there's actually kind of a pre-fiscal crisis that develops under Mayor Wagner, um, but then it, 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 it substantially subsides, partly because of the strong economy of the 60s in the city, um, and then it, it also the arrival of the Great Society and the a kind of an increase in federal funding for cities. Um, and then it emerges again at the end of the 60s as there's an economic downturn, as Nixon's election signals the end of a rising federal commitment. Um, and it's at that point that the borrowing, which had been, yeah, had been present earlier, but it really takes off in the early 70s as, um, as Lindsay and then being confront a growing budget gap that they're unwilling to address politically and they're unwilling to address in terms of, you know, how can we manage to sustain this? Who will pay for it? What, there's a, a kind of a, a they, they evade this in a way by expanding the amount of debt the city's taking on. And that's where, um, that's where you get the fiscal crisis. And I think part of the issue is, is um, you know, the, the, the problem with taking on the new debt was that it was um, it wound up giving a lot of political power ultimately to the banks and to the creditors who held the debt. So in a sense, you know, it was a kind of short-term solution to a revenue shortfall, but it wasn't. It, it was a. It, it not only was it not a solution to the revenue issue in the long term, it was also politically not a solution because it wound up empowering a group of people who had no political commitment to the project that, um, you know, the city government was trying to carry out. Right. There's some, some Faustian elements to that. Um, right. <laughs> uh, but but not, not just a lack of political commitment, but as you mentioned yeah. earlier, in terms of elites, in some, in some of those Wall Street offices and some of those bond-holding entities, right. uh, a kind of antipathy. Yeah, an active hostility and dislike for it. And so that raises the question that others others have, and I know you you address it somewhat in your book, which is, to what extent was the crisis a genuine concern by those right. financial houses that they were going to lose their shirts versus a kind of a manufactured one where because they realized the power they had, um, they basically use those financial tools to to mold the city in an image mm -hmm. that more to their liking. How much of this was a genuine panic and how much right. of it was, it was a, you know, manufactured crisis? Well, you know, I, I think it, it I, I guess I think that there, um, I come down a little bit more on the side of saying that it was an actual crisis, that it's not, um, that, that, that they, and, um, you know, you can always, they had agency, they could have acted differently um, had they, but, but I do think that the problem they were pointing to was an actual problem that the city was actually, um, it, the, the, the city was in a, it, it, it was, there was this growing gap between revenues and expenses. The city did not have a good plan for how to address that. Uh, you can say the banks should have stopped acting um, you know, could, could they have, would, would they have been able to continue rolling over the city's debt? Um, could they have continued to do so without grave danger to themselves? Um, you know, perhaps they could have, but I think in a way it's, 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 uh, 
within the framework of being capitalist, profit-maximizing institutions, they were not irrational in thinking that there was a problem. And um, I also think there there was actually when they you know they they th there was a change in the market. There the the kind of the national. Um, you know, bond, there were, there were actually, there was a shortage of people buying the city's debt. So the banks would have had to hold more of it themselves in order to uh, avoid a problem emerging. So again, I, I, I guess I think that there was a, a um, I don't think it was just a power play now, I, or just a kind of manufactured illusory crisis. And, and I guess this actually points to another um, you know, element of the story, which is I think that the, one of the things which has is, is been always very interesting of, to me or compelling about this story um, is that it is a story about a dilemma. It's not a story in which there is a kind of, you can just uh, snap your fingers and have things be different. It is a story which is a, about a kind of deep conflict that was, that, that found itself getting worked out in this way. Um, and is, it's a, and I, I guess in a way, I think that that's what, um, it's, it wasn't just a kind of ideological project. There was an actual set of material clashes that took shape and was expressed through the fiscal crisis. And a lot of, um, I, I guess in a way, I think that's what class conflict is really like and really about. And that it's not, you, can, you can't just, um, you know, it, it, it's, you, yeah, just the, the conditions under which it can be different are hard to attain. They're not just things that can be simply shifted, if that makes sense. So, but, so that's kind of where I, I yeah, I see that I think there was within the framework of capitalism, a genuine problem that took shape in New York and the question of how to pay for these services was and how to pay for this kind of um, more expansive government was something that had to be addressed politically and in terms of a broad shift of power in the society overall. I, you know, there are some things like another thing which I didn't mention earlier was some of the structure of the Great Society programs was one that created deep fiscal burdens for New York. So for example, Medicaid. Um, in New York State, so Medicaid is a program that's obviously funded half by the federal government, half by the states. There's always a split like that. But then within New York, the split between the city cities and the state government is very high. So cities bear half of the, the state Medicaid cost. In many other states, cities bear a much lower proportion of that cost. So that was another kind of real weight on the city's budget going into the 70s. Had you changed the Medicaid funding formulas, the city's fiscal position would have looked very different. But even this, so you might say, well, that's like a simple thing you can point to. If it had been different, the city wouldn't have been in this terrible crisis. But even that, it's not like you can just sort of um, snap your fingers and change it. The way that it's set up reflects itself a set of kind of the distribution of power and resources in New York State overall. And so changing that would, is, is sort of the real underlying problem and project. One of the dramatic stories that's told about the fiscal crisis is that at some point, maybe at multiple points, but at some point, a police cruiser was running in the city hall driveway with the bankruptcy papers in the, in the seat in case they needed to, to run them right. over to the courthouse. And yes. the question that obviously this whole story frames is, 
you know, the, the deep fear of going bankrupt right. and, and the way, the power that that gave various actors over yeah. the city. Um, and one of the questions your book certainly frames is whether that fear of bankruptcy was mm -hmm. well-founded. I mean, obviously millions of Americans go bankrupt, many businesses, the president's done it several times and he's emerged okay. <laughs> um, right. If the city had gone bankrupt, a judge would have been in charge mm -hmm. of figuring out who gets paid first and who doesn't. Uh, would, right. it have been, would it have been so terrible to go bankrupt? Would it have been so terrible for the city to go bankrupt? Well, I think that's a, that's a, a great question. Um, and, uh, you know, I think it, um, I, I mean, I, again, in a way, I think that the, the, it's, uh, the, the fear of bankruptcy um, over that year, motivated so much. There was a, a deep sense that going bankrupt would be would mean intense chaos. One interesting thing about that moment is that the federal bankruptcy law actually really didn't provide for the, the for the, the bankruptcy of a city on the scale of New York. Um, existing bankruptcy law in 1975 uh, for a municipality stated that you had to have a meeting where all the creditors, 50% of the creditors would approve whatever the payment plan was going to be. Nobody even knew who all the creditors for New York City were. There was no like master list somewhere. Um, it was, and, and it, you know, to, to, to hold that meeting would have been, you know, physically impossible, basically. Um, so it, 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 there was really a sense of the, the bankruptcy would be highly chaotic. Um, and I think it was, you know, people were, this is at a time when it, the, 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 the country was just coming out of a recession. There was a lot of fear that the bankruptcy of New York would trigger broad instability in the financial system, more generally in the economy. It, it played into Cold War fears about how Moscow would see, you know, what was happening in the what it would mean symbolically for New York to go bankrupt. So there was a whole atmosphere of, of, of fear around it. And that was what exactly what justified ultimately the creation of um, the Emergency Financial Control Board, a state agency that got kind of final power over the city's budget. And it's what justified the cuts that followed. Would it have been better for ordinary New Yorkers? Um, I think it's hard to say. I'm not at all sure that it would have been a lot better. You know, I, I think that a judge probably would have pushed through a similar set of cuts. Um, maybe a judge would have been more, you know, you could imagine it could have been worse in terms of service cuts. Um, so I, I think it's interesting. In a certain way, bankruptcy, you know, as far as the kind of the, the quality of life and the nature of public institutions in the city, um, just as the turn to the, the debt was a way of avoiding questions about who would pay for these, so too, in a way, the kind of going to bankruptcy court, that really isn't any more of a democratic mechanism or one that is, um, you know, kind of capable of responding to or addressing the needs and lives of ordinary people in the city either. So I never had felt like that was really the solution. Um, you know, I think the 
you know, I, I think, you know, there definitely were alternatives to the fiscal crisis, but I think they, you know, bankruptcy, I just, I'm not sure it would have been better. It could possibly have been worse. It could have been about the same. So mm -hmm. I, I don't think, though, that there's much reason to think it would have been a lot better. You're listening to Max and Murphy on WBAI 99.5 FM. We're speaking with Professor Kimberly Phillips-Fine of NYU's Gallatin School. She is the author of Fear City, New York's Fiscal Crisis and the Rise of Austerity Politics. We're talking about fiscal crises past and perhaps present. And we've been speaking to this point about kind of the underlying roots of the 1970s fiscal crisis and how it came to that moment. But as you mentioned, that moment did come. The decision was made to empower um, a, an emergency board or actually a couple different boards. Talk about that, the impact of the decision to put that entity in charge, what that meant for the city's governance, mm -hmm. and where the cuts hit. Right, so the, um, the, the, there were a couple of different, uh, essentially what happened over the, the solution to the fiscal crisis was to find ways to move um, kind of the final say over the city's budget out of the hands of the mayor and the city council and to kind of try to distribute power upwards in a way. So first, the Municipal Assistance Corporation was created, which was an entity that was allowed to sell debt backed by a dedicated sales tax and then um, give that money to the city if it was making cuts. Um, then the emergency, that the problem with that was that people had to be willing to buy the MAC debt, the, the Municipal Assistance Corporation debt. They were not willing to do so. Um, and as a result, the Emergency Financial Control Board was created, and that was this, again, state entity. The mayor is on it, um, and so is the comptroller, along with the governor, the lieutenant governor, but then there were three, quote-unquote, public members who were all um, corporate executives at that point. There was no labor representative. There was no community representative. All people asked for both of these things. And the, the Emergency Financial Control Board was given a kind of final veto power over the city government and over the budget. And um, with this in place, uh, the mayor, Mayor Beam, also was kind of compelled to make a set of personnel changes, bringing in people who would be seen as more friendly to the business community, and also um, there, there was kind of more uh, oriented towards professional accounting norms um, and he uh, and and then this uh, along with the um, the federal the kind of the program of federal loans that was conditional upon the city be, you know kind of making a set of, of cuts forced the city into this position where it wound up kind of imposing this set of st stiff budget cuts and I actually think it's important to, to recognize um, the Financial Control Board mostly did not, by the time it was created, Mayor Beam and much of the city government was on board with this program, or they, they felt despite the resistance that had been put up initially, they were basically bought into the sense that they had to make these cuts. Um, and so the Financial Control Board didn't so much go in and set priorities as it provided a sort of final political backstop. It would have prevented this, them from doing other things, but it also, because of that, because it was there, it didn't actually go in and say, okay, well, you have to cut this or this, you know, this item or that item. 
It was more in the background. And um, I think that's also it just, it's just important to have a sense that, that it's not the way that power works in these situations isn't always by the people who obtain it going in and manipulating things directly. It's more, it, it, it's a kind of structural power that then winds up giving, um, you know, creating this context where it seems as though there's no alternative. And what was the impact of the, the, the decisions they made, the cuts they asked for? Yeah. What was, their, what was their impact on life in the city, you know, in the immediate term? And, and what were its sort of longer lasting impacts? Yeah. So the cuts affected all different parts of the city. They, um, they affected uh, sanitation, parks, general capital upkeep. They affected um, the the kind of the whole healthcare apparatus, the public health department was cut back dramatically. Hospitals were closed, local clinics were closed, drug treatment programs that existed were terminated. Um, the libraries had to cut their hours of service. Um, the, there were a lot of cuts to police and to fire protection as well. Firehouses around the city were closed after the crisis. Um, and this is at a time, you know, when the homicide rate is actually rising in the city and when there's a kind of arson wave in um, both the Bronx and Brooklyn. So um, the tuition began to be charged at the City University of New York and, you know, has been charged ever since that time. The schools faced a lot of cuts and actually, um, you know, the parts of the city, like the, 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 uh, um, in, in central Harlem, for example, lost quite a number of elementary schools. You know, in recent, you know, as there a debate rages in New York now about whether schools can reopen at all in the fall in the context of the COVID crisis. And as, um, you know, public school, are, it appears that in many schools, the school can only safely accommodate one third of the students. I cannot help but think of these school buildings that were closed during the 70s on the, you know, what people, people said that they, they were um, running too far below capacity, what the city wouldn't, you know, how you know, we could use those school buildings now. <laughs> um, the school day was shortened by 90 minutes. Schools lost a lot of music and art and extracurricular programs. So the, these cuts were quite extensive and they affected the full panoply of city services. Um, they fell most heavily on poor people, but they definitely affected middle-class New Yorkers as well. And I think that they, um, you know, it, it, spending in the city uh, eventually begins to rise again in the late 80s, but it takes a long time to recover. And, um, and, and then when it does come back, there are, it, it's not as though it just comes back across the board. The types of art and music programs that the city had funded previously never really were restored to the city schools. A lot of that, and, and the same is true of, you know, the, the hospitals that were closed were not reopened. Um, the, the changes to CUNY were not taken back as the city went into, you know, better economic times. So I, I think it's a, the, the, there was a, you know, the, the, the type of services that the city provided and the vision of the city government really shifted out of the crisis. And I think also this is a moment when you start to see the, um, the emergence of kind of public-private partnerships or the, 
a different type of mechanism for funding city services. So the rise of business improvement districts that kind of collect taxes in a particular area and use it to kind of provide a boost for public services in that little community or um, the park conservancies, which wind up benefiting, you know, some parks, but not others, or even the PTAs and the kind of the, the expansion of uh, the reliance on parent teacher associations to fund things like clay teachers or extra reading teachers. And the, the you know, in any particular instance, um, that can look okay, but, but distributed across the whole city, what it winds up meaning is that parents in wealthy neighborhoods who are able to donate to their PTAs get a set of extracurricular services that kids in poor neighborhoods do not have. And so in, the, in this way, they, these kind of contribute to a growing inequality in, in the city and both kind of, you know, they, they, they reflect it and they feed it at the same time. The city on a, grassroots, on a grassroots level, did, did people generally accept these cuts? I mean, there, there, were, there was resistance to, to many of them, I imagine. Yeah, there was intense resistance to them. And that was another thing that I was, I think, really surprised by was the extent of that resistance because it is not reflected in typical narratives about the fiscal crisis. So a lot of the particular cuts, um, you know, generated intense opposition. There were both, you know, there were, there were, there were uh, you know, wildcat strikes of city workers, there were um, protests of, you know, people who had been receiving services through city funded, you know, kind of anti addiction programs or people kind of held sleep outs at Gracie Mansion. Um, parents and teachers at schools that who that were slated for closure, marched in the streets, high school students who were protesting the growth of class sizes to 45, 50, 60 kids per class protested. Um, there were sleep outs in libraries to try to keep libraries threatened with closure open. Probably one of the most famous uh, protests of the era was the People's Firehouse, a firehouse in um, North Williamsburg in Brooklyn that was slated with closure. People in the neighborhood were terrified of it closing. Um, there were a lot of wood frame houses in the neighborhood and people felt the fire risk was extremely real. And they slept in the firehouse for 16 months, um, kind of physically preventing the fire engine from being driven out. And ultimately the firehouse was reopened at that point. Um, there were many protests in CUNY, both protests against the uh, closure of campuses um, such as Hostos Community College in the South Bronx, um, also John Jay, Megra Evers too, was Megra Evers was gonna be turned into a two-year school. So there were many protests throughout the system to keep public services. I think it was difficult to, uh, and in many cases, these were successful. I mean, the people actually did rescue particular institutions that were threatened with closure. And I think that that is a major victory. I, I wouldn't, you know, I think that's a, it's, it's, doing research for this book actually involved going to a lot of the places that had been um, threatened with closure. And I think going up, for example, to Hostos itself, uh, you know, this is a, a remarkable institution. It's a wonderful school and it sustains a particular kind of intellectual community. Um, and it's a, a triumph that it's there today and it wouldn't be there if it had not been for the work that people had done then and the courage that students and professors showed in fighting to keep the school. So 
But at the same time, these different local struggles had trouble coalescing into a citywide program that would mount a challenge to this type of politics in the city more broadly. And I think the reasons it had trouble doing so are interesting. Um, you know, was there something kind of defensive about this mobilization? It could kind of challenge the closure of a particular institution that had to you know, provide a counter narrative, a counter argument for the city as a whole. That was much more challenging, much more difficult to do, and would have involved unifying people from different neighborhoods, different parts of the city um, in a way that was maybe hard, was harder, so. Mm -hmm. and, and I guess that, that you know, brings it to the next question, which is, you know, one could have rewired history to change the um, formation of the crisis and the roots mm -hmm. of the crisis, but once the crisis hit, was there a different path than the one that Mayor Beam and the Comptroller and yeah. the Financial Control Board mapped out? Was there a different way to deal with the potential bankruptcy? Well, yeah. I mean, I think that there, there. Um, I, I do think that there. Uh, you, you could have had um, an alternative to the cuts. It would have involved. Um, you know, to have a real alternative to the cuts, you would have either had to have the federal government extending assistance to the city on a different set of terms, uh, a federal government that was interested in supporting the type of government that the city embodied and represented. Um, you also would have had to have a different kind of, um, you know, you could imagine taxing uh, wealthy New Yorkers differently. You could imagine a program of state you know, kind of a difference in New York State, but I think at the core, it really does have to do with the federal government and that it's hard to, um, so you can kind of, you know, so it's it's one of these, um, comp, you know, it, 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 and you could say president, you know, what was happening at the federal government level at that point was not, you know, it, it was a it was not a context that was going to be very friendly to New York. You had Gerald Ford in office. Ford had an ascendant right wing that he was contending with in the Republican Party. Um, he had a lot of, and, and he was kind of swayed by this group of people and a group of advisors who were fiercely and extremely hostile to New York. Um, not just in a kind of pragmatic way, but in a very ideological way for everything the city represented. Um, so I think, you know, to, how could you have challenged that? How could you have taken it on? You would have had to have a very different set of political forces. Um, it might be that had you created massive disruption and disorder in the city or had the, um, you know, had there been a, you know, had the Democratic Party been in a different position at that point or, had New York been able to articulate what it was doing in a way that reached out to people in other parts of the country, to other mayors, to other, other cities in difficult circumstances, perhaps you could have created the kind of political framework for a different solution. Um, that would have been very difficult. It would have been hard to do, but it's not, I think what's, what's important about it, and this is maybe helpful for the present situation too, is that it's not like technically you can't imagine what could possibly have been done. You know, technically, you can think you can. There, technically, there were solutions. It's not as though they weren't. Um, but the reasons that it was hard to adopt them are political, mm -hmm. and um, you know. So I, I think that's that's in some ways the 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 
heart of the issue, the heart of the difficulty. You could have extended loans to the city in a different way. You could have reshaped some of the um, programs like Medicaid that were very disadvantageous to the city. You could perhaps have created a kind of federal, this is something people talk about a bit at the time, a federal um, kind of bank extending low interest loans to cities in difficult financial circumstances. The Federal Reserve Bank could have made loans to the city. So there, there are kind of particular technical solutions, but none of them were really advanced. But the reason for that is not that they are like unimaginable, it is that the political reality to make them possible wasn't present. Wasn't there, right? So yeah. let's, in the few minutes we have left, let's talk about the current crisis. Obviously, yeah. it's, it follows a very different pattern. It's come on mm -hmm. us much more suddenly, and New York City is much more part of a national slash global crisis than it was in 75. Yeah. But, yeah. Um, you know, there are some parallels being drawn and there is the possibility of, of you know, a second fiscal crisis, mm -hmm. if not already being underway, certainly hitting us the next six to nine months. Um, right. Do you see austerity politics renewed, kind of rearing its head? And what lessons would you take from the 70s episode that might guide policymakers and activists, advocates today? Yeah, well, I, I think there is, um, you know, there, there are some parts of the, so I think the, the um, I mean, I think, that, you know, in some ways the underlying politics going into this crisis are slightly different in that the you know, while New York's government has grown a lot in recent years and spending has grown, it, it, it isn't a lot of the, you know, the, the, the type of city that it is has changed a great deal from the, the post-war years. So I think the political situation in the city is somewhat different than it was then. But yes, I do think that you can clearly, you can see that there is, you know, the likelihood of a real fiscal crisis and that once again, the go-to solution for the kind of the immediate problem of a shortage of revenue and expenses will be to find ways to cut the expenses. And that that's kind of the, the kind of the telescoping of the problem um, is going to lead to that as a sense that, you know, oh, the only thing we can possibly do is make these cuts. I think what is actually a bit different about the current situation is that the cuts are, um, if anything, even more, what, is, what the city desperately needs is an infusion of resources that the, you know, to have a functional, safe public transit system, to be able to reopen the public schools, um, if that is possible, to, you actually need a major infusion of resources to accomplish those things. So the context of cuts, you know, in some ways makes even less sense to me now than it did then, because the restoration of any semblance of normal economic life in the city requires these institutions, these public institutions to function. So to make the, to kind of, you know, it's, it's to, to threaten the, the idea that instead of thinking seriously about how could you open the schools safely? Um, how could you get the space, the resources, 
the investment in ventilation systems, the protective equipment. I mean, and, you know, maybe it's not possible, but I think it, I don't, if it is possible to do it, it requires an investment of resources, a substantial investment of resources. And the idea that instead of that, we would suddenly be talking about how, you know, how many parks workers can you hire or how many school nurses can you afford to pay for? It, I find that it, there's a certain dissonance or gap with reality and with the actual nature of the crisis that's unfolding here that um, is, it seems a kind of, it's a moral outrage and difficult to fathom. So I, I think that's, um, I think that as in the fiscal crisis in the 70s, we need to think both about federal resources, and I think we will need to do this, you know, in, in the, the conditions now, or if anything, um, you know, it's, it's, they don't seem very favorable. But if Trump is hopefully loses in November, I think people will need to think about how to pressure the Biden administration to give cities and to give New York the resources that it needs. And I think also that we have to think about ways to tax the extraordinarily wealthy New Yorkers um, who have really profited out of the system that grew out of the fiscal crisis and who uh, I think have a, you know, there's a, an obligation to find a way to um, capture that wealth for a city that has, uh, you know, for the city now that it's facing this disaster, this unfolding crisis. So, I think that this is not a time to, if anything, um, I'm hoping that people can continue to defend the public sector and its importance and the necessity of it, especially when it comes to meeting this public health crisis. Um, and to you know, not get pushed into the anxiety that a fiscal crisis inevitably generates. These crises are about, at heart, power and resources and who exercises them, and people should not, you know, shy away from that now.